is a big deal and we thank each and every one of you. We want you to know that we value your participation with us each and every week. Let me just say good morning. Uh, many of you are aware that Cynthia and I have had a privilege of being mom and dad to three sons. Over the years, as they grew older, we as a family seemed to grow out of that habit of gift-giving that seems to be attached to, to birthday and Christmas celebrations. Rather than give individual gifts, we found ourselves starting to try and be more intentional and doing something that would build the memory. I remember one Christmas a number of years ago, I, I think our youngest sons were in high school, our oldest was by then in his first year of university. But all three were traveling a lot more with their sporting activities and leaving mom and dad behind. And because of that, we decided that one Christmas we would buy them a gift, a gift that would allow them to spend some time with the manners lady. And so we, Cynthia and I, made the contact and we told her what we were hoping to accomplish, and, and she made all the arrangements for the evening. We met her one evening at a higher-end restaurant with a white tablecloth and the crystal glasses, and, and you have to remember, we're walking in with three young men, and uh, they were probably not all that impressed with the gift, but they were cooperating nonetheless. And she walked us as a family through a six-course meal, explaining every step of the way and all the etiquette that goes along with it. Things like how to eat soup and dinner rolls, how to fold the table napkin on your lap, how to position the knife and fork on the main course plate after you're done, to signal to the waiter or waitress that she can take your plate away. All kinds of things. And she was absolutely tremendous with our guys. We had a, just a fabulous time as a family, built a memory, and actually learned some table manners along the way. You see, as parents, we never wanted our sons declining invitations or, or feeling awkward because they didn't know how to participate in a formal meal. This morning, we're going to consider a passage of Scripture in which Jesus teaches some table manners for eating the bread of life. You know that for the past few weeks, we've been looking at John chapter 6. The chapter begins with a miracle of all miracles. Jesus taking five barley loaves and two fish fed a multitude of some twenty to 25,000 people. As a result, the, the crowd wanted to make, them, make him their king. And Jesus was able to slip away, withdraw into the hills alone. And eventually, all three parties, Jesus, his disciples, and this crowd, made their way across the Sea of Galilee back to the city of Capernaum. 
Last week, we focused on Jesus' follow-up encounter with that crowd that he had fed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The same people who wanted to make him king. And he gave them four directives that were intended to help him help them understand his claim to be the bread of life. It was a metaphor. The same way those five loaves and two fish had met their physical hunger, Jesus was claiming that he could meet their need for spiritual nutrition if they would only believe in him as the Son of God, the Christ. If you are able, I'd invite you to turn, stand with me and turn to John chapter 6 for the reading of God's word this morning. I'd like us to begin at verse 40, and we'll read through to the end of verse 59. So beginning at verse 40 of John chapter 6. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is, this not, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the, live, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. You may be seated. Father, again, we pause to acknowledge that this is your eternal word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It is powerful, trustworthy, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. As we consider this specific encounter between the Jews and Jesus, as reported by the Apostle John, teach us, we pray. May we not be like the one who looks intently at himself or herself in the mirror and then goes away, immediately forgetting what we have seen. Rather, by your spirit and for your glory, enable us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who are deceiving ourselves by thinking or pretending to be something that we're not. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Table manners for eating the bread of life. Before we begin making our way through this passage, allow me to just set the table, so to speak. It's important to notice that Jesus is no longer speaking to that crowd that he was speaking to earlier, prior to verse 41, but he's now speaking to the Jews. The Jews is a label used by the Apostle John to identify Jesus' official opposition. Remember that collective reference that John made about the Jewish people in his opening monologue right at the beginning of the book. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So generally speaking, the Jewish people rejected Jesus. But the Jews, that label, John used to refer to those religious elite of Jesus' day, those self-appointed God's watchdogs over Judaism. Initially, they were cautious and skeptical about this dynamic young rabbi. But as his popularity grew, exponentially, I might add, they became more and more jealous and hateful. In fact, by the time we get to John chapter 5, we read that the Jews, same people, were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So from cautious skepticism to first-degree murder, all justified because they saw themselves as protecting their religion and their sacred traditions. These are the Jews who are now engaging Jesus in these verses from 41 
to 59. And notice it's on their turf. They had home field advantage. Look at verse 59 of John chapter 6. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So Jesus presented these table manners for eating the bread of life while standing in a synagogue in the city of Capernaum. I'd say that's pretty bold. And he began with, stop grumbling. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, this, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Jesus commanded the Jews to stop grumbling among themselves. It's an imperative. The Greek word translated grumbled suggests that there was a, a rumbling that was passing through the synagogue that day as the participants muttered and murmured amongst themselves. It's a half-suppressed complaint. Nobody really has the courage or the intestinal fortitude to, to stand up and actually voice their concern. It's a whispering. A pss, 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 pss. Similar to that wave that people do in breaks of action at sporting events. It just passed through the audience. Can't see it. It's verbal. But you can certainly hear it. And what were they grumbling about? Jesus' family of origin. He was claiming to have come down out of heaven. He was known amongst them as the son of Joseph, a carpenter from over in Nazareth. Hearing his come down from heaven claim had flipped their grumbling switch. I wonder if the Apostle John used this word intentionally. When I read it, my mind goes immediately back to their Jewish ancestors. For sure, we know them to be a bunch of grumblers. Making their way through the wilderness, following God's supernatural deliverance from Egyptian oppression and slavery, they grumbled about everything. Lack of water. When they got sick of eating God's supernaturally provided manna. Lack of water. They grumbled against Aaron and Moses' leadership. And lack of water. It seems these Israelites suffered from a chronic case of grumbleitis. And we need to know that grumbling test the patience of God. Listen to Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger burned against them, and he sent fire to rage among them, and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Listen to the Lord's confession to Moses 
in Numbers chapter 14. How long, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, this is God speaking to Moses, asking him to pass this message on to the Israelites. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your number men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Grumbling. On this occasion, it was a capital offense. And the New Testament does not remain silent. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 wrote this reflection. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then he lists them. Verse 7, do not be, do not be idolaters. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally. Verse 9, nor let us try or test the Lord. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling. So here's my, my suggestion for us. Avoid grumbling. And grumblers. Because I'm thinking that grumbling may be contagious. I'm not sure, but it might be. Why do we grumble? Why do we grumble? Where does that come from? Well, when things aren't going my way or according to my plan, so really, it just comes down to, to selfishness. But I have to admit, at times like that, it's easy to grumble. Unthankful or ungrateful people are grumblers. It's hard to grumble when you're saying thank you. Nurturing a bad attitude and or bitterness produces grumblers. When we minimize God's sovereignty and or God's providence, it sets us up to be grumblers. Why is this happening to me? This, it's just not fair. When our present negative circumstances are allowed to consume us, we lose sight of God and we start to grumble. Fatigue. We're worn out. We're tired. Everything looks darker. It's easy to grumble. And as I alluded to earlier, grumblers often produce grumblers and or at least attract them. Now those aren't intended to be excuses. Bruce just mentioned a few moments ago Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Grumbling does just the opposite. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 reads, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I'd say that's pretty clear. 
You know, some sins are obvious and ugly. Other sins, well, unseen sins, or social, socially acceptable sins, are still sins. And they're destructive and despicable to God. Grumbly is one of those other sins that God doesn't take lightly. Jesus' table manners for eating the bread of life began with stop grumbling. And then listen attentively. Jesus explained to the grumbling Jews why they should consider the bread of life menu. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Why should they consider the bread of life menu? Because it involves an irresistible work of God. You and I are incapable of coming to Jesus apart from God's influence in our lives. Our sin prevents any hope of that. Coming to God will always be a result of his initiative in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Titus 3.5 He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God draws us and he teaches us. The scriptures are his primary tool for teaching us. But apart from his influence in our lives, we are incapable of coming to Christ. Notice verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Why should we consider the bread of life menu? Because of Jesus' testimony and or claim about himself. Don't go looking around for some kind of mystical encounter with the Father. It's not going to happen. Verse 47 begins with another strong affirmation. Truly, truly, I say to you. And then Jesus just repeats the same self-disclosure he had presented earlier to that crowd outside the synagogue. Look back at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Drop down to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
Jesus clearly and continually presented evidence and claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. And in spite of it being a work of God, it still requires each one of us to believe in Jesus. This is our response ability or our ability to respond to God's work in our lives. Verses 49 and 50. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Why should they consider the bread of life menu? Well, because it was superior to the wilderness manna. Listen, this manna was a supernatural provision of God Almighty that sustained their forefathers through a 40-year journey in a very harsh climate. Jesus was not suggesting that this was insignificant, but it was a provision of God that provided the daily nourishment needed to sustain their physical life. Eventually, they all died. Jesus, on the other hand, was offering food for their souls. Cynthia and I were involved in another funeral this week, and as I stood at the graveside, I used this following committal. And as much as it pleased God, in his sovereign wisdom and in keeping with his plans and purposes, to take Sonia from our midst, we now commit the remains of her earthly body to the ground, knowing that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Amen. I read a passage of scripture and then I prayed. Father, we thank you for Sonia's life here on earth. And we recognize that the remains of her body are not Sonia, but rather the earthly container which she occupied while living among us. We acknowledge that Sonia is now rejoicing in your very presence, enjoying the fullness of eternal life and the blessings of heaven. And that leads us to the final reason why we should consider the bread of life menu. Notice verse 51. I am the bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I give for the life of the world, is my flesh. They should consider the bread of life menu because it offers the promise of eternal life. One commentator wrote the following. When God gave manna, he gave only a gift. But when Jesus came, he gave himself. There was no cost to God in sending manna each day, but he gave his son at great cost. The Jews had to eat manna every day, but the sinner who trusts Jesus Christ alone once is given eternal life. Jesus claimed to be the living bread that was going to give himself 
for the life of the world, not just for the Jews, but for the entire world. In this statement, Jesus was forecasting the sacrifice that he was going to make. No one was going to take his life from him, meaning his physical life, but he was willing to lay his own life down, his own initiative. And because of that sacrifice, those who eat this bread will live forever. And God's involvement in this process is absolutely comprehensive. Hear the words of the psalmist. But, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. The plan of salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Every detail has God's fingerprints all over it. Salvation is a gift from God and is entirely dependent on him. Our only contribution is the sin that was laid on Jesus as he hung on that cross at Calvary in our place. The Apostle Paul wrote, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. So how do we respond? Acknowledge your limitations. We need to be unashamedly dependent people. And we dare not skim over Jesus' words too quickly in John chapter 15, verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul reminds us, the Philippians, we work out our salvation as God works in us. We are a dependent people. And as far as fulfilling our duty and sharing the gospel, being the salt and light in the world, we continue sharing the gospel, knowing that we can never argue someone into the kingdom of God, but we share and we pray. We share and we pray. We share and we pray. Because we know it's the only way God has to draw people and teach people. It's essential. Table manners. In eating the bread of life, stop grumbling, listen attentively, and chew with your mouth closed. Jesus' reference to my flesh sparked an argument amongst these Jews. Look at verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? From there, Jesus continued to speak metaphorically, which did nothing to alleviate the argument amongst these Jews. In fact, it probably poured gasoline on the fire. Notice verses 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. It almost sounds like cannibalism, right? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the Father ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. So Jesus, standing in a synagogue in the city of Capernaum, invited these argumentative Jews to consume the meal that only he can provide. How's that for an example of courageous leadership? Let me just quickly point out why this passage should not be applied to the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord, communion, whatever you want to call it. It should not be applied to that. Let me just run through some ideas here. First of all, what on earth would Jesus, why on earth would Jesus speak about the Lord's Supper to a group of people who were determined and seeking all the more to kill him? Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. Secondly, the Last Supper with his disciples has not yet been instituted. That's down the road at the last Passover meal they share together, right before his crucifixion. Still future. Thirdly, verse 53 makes eating his flesh and drinking his blood an absolute essential qualifier for salvation. Think of the thief on the cross. That would eliminate him. He didn't have time to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper or the table of the Lord. Fourthly, the tense of the verbs throughout this passage of Scripture are all in the aorist tense, which suggests it's a once-for-all-time event. Just happens once. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is not presented in any passage as a repeatable activity. Fifth, the word translated flesh used here in this passage is never found in any of the clear explanations when the scriptures are clearly talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. So in summary, any application of this passage to the Lord's Supper, whatever else you want to call it, is false teaching and should be rejected. Let me give it to you straight. Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's using word pictures to communicate a spiritual reality. It involved his flesh and his blood, his whole physical person. That kind of intimate consumption of his person results in eternal life and ensures that we will be raised on the last day. You might want to underline the progression in these verses. Notice this. Verse 53, eat. Verse 54, has eternal life. Verse 55, abides. Verse 58, last words, will live forever. There is the progression that becomes accessible when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God's menu for spiritual nutrition is Jesus. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Christianity is exclusive. Jesus himself claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we are to consume him. Believing is how we eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. And that assumes, or at least requires, an appetite. Those who are satisfied with their sin will have no hunger for spiritual things. However, if we do develop an appetite and consume him, the old saying will prove true. We are what we eat. And we will find that more and more, as we eat Jesus, so to speak, eat his flesh and drink his blood, more and more will become like him. And remember, eating is a personal activity. I can't eat for you, and you can't eat for me. But we can sure encourage one another to eat and drink deeply of the word of God. Believing is how we eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. Believing. Believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation of Hebrews chapter 4 may be helpful. We receive the same promises as those people in the wilderness, but the promises didn't do them one bit of good because they didn't receive the promises with faith. In other words, they didn't believe. If we believe, though, we'll experience that state of resting. The table's been set. We've all been invited. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Table manners. Prepare us for eating the bread of life. So mind your manners. Stop grumbling. Listen attentively. Chew with your mouth closed. But for goodness sakes, eat. Experience eternal life. Abide in him. Enjoy the assurance and hope of living forever. Father, you are eternal and you have created us in your image. Part of that image bearing is that we have been created to live forever, each and every one of us. Enable us to respond to your initiatives in our lives. May each one of us develop an insatiable appetite for spiritual things. Prevent temporal things from becoming our idols and then our masters. Free those who are presently trapped. Thank you for Jesus and the Apostle John's account of his life and ministry. As we spend these weeks studying the gospel according to John, teach us, reprove us, correct us. 
and train us, train us in righteousness so that we might become the people of God and a localized expression of the body of Christ that is equipped for every good work. We ask these things to be accomplished by the power of your spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.